The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Happy New Year. So today I want to play for you two important interviews I did recently. The first one with filmmaker and author Michelle Shane. And the second one with attorney and activist, Jake Bornazian. The Blunt Post with Vic. Michelle Shane is a renowned filmmaker. He's made such films as Catch Me If You Can, iRobot, and many other blockbusters throughout his career. He also just produced the documentary feature film, 21 Miles in Malibu, which is based on the tragic death of his daughter, who was killed by a, an out-of-control raging driver on Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu. Um, so his film, 21 Miles in Malibu, is a, is a filmmaker's work as well as a father's and an activist's. Malibu is this little oasis where wealthy people and average people get away, relax, and enjoy the natural beauty. People bring their amazing cars out to this town because there's so many great places to see and things to do. The parking, the bicycle, the walking, the deliveries. This road was never meant to handle that many people. This is going to end badly. Nothing has been changed since the 50s. Most cities have two or three miles of the PCH. We have 21 miles. The deadly collision happened just after noon and left two people dead and two others injured. The news of the crash has heightened concerns over safety out here. I get to where I'm supposed to meet her, which is the corner of Heathercliff and PCH, and I see a car is turned over. For a split second, I said to myself, you know, Emily was supposed to be there. Nah, can't be. She was a really good kid. She was a sweet, kind person who didn't have a mean bone in her body. The EMT told me she had died. My life changed forever. It is one of the most dangerous places around. PCH isn't safe, and everyone knows that, and no one's done anything about that. I have seen nine fatal collisions or deaths from this exact spot where I'm standing. There is study after study after study about what needs to be done. Not one of them has been implemented. Being in this roadway is the single most dangerous thing you're probably going to do. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking to you. Yes, uh, same here. I'm, uh, I just happen to be um, sort of promoting my own documentary too. And not that I want to talk about my project, but uh, it's interesting to um, look at yours. Yours is um, a very personal one. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, later on. 21 Miles in Malibu. Uh, of course, you're you're a celebrated filmmaker um, for in many years with many blockbusters behind you, um, such as Catch Me If You Can, iRobot, etc. But we're going to mainly talk about your documentary, uh, your foundation, uh, honoring your daughter, uh, after whom the foundation is named and such. Anything else you want to talk about, too? So I'll let you sort of tell us about uh, 21 Miles in Malibu. So this was a kind of I had to make it. The irony of my career is the very first picture that I produced or show that I produced was a documentary. And that kind of got me into producing. And I had done it in Canada for Beton Broadcasting, which I don't even think exists anymore. And it was The Treasures of the Titanic. Uh, we had done a, a television show, um, uh, Titanic Live with Telly Savalas, 
And uh, I had worked on that. We had done it as a Canadian tax shelter film. And uh, this was an offshoot that we sold to a local broadcaster. So that was my experience in being a documentary filmmaker. And then what happened was uh, in 2010, my youngest daughter was murdered by an enraged driver. Uh, he was having a bad day, broke up with his girlfriend, lost his job, et cetera, et cetera, wrote a note to her, left her check, and drove from, call it the top of Topanga, to Heathercliff in Malibu, which is 20 miles. Yeah. And there were six 911 calls of people just saying, this is going to end badly. This is going to end badly. I was driving down. I lived up a canyon. I was driving down our canyon. I was at the light at PCH and saw this crazy car go flying by, cutting lanes. And I said to myself, oh, my God, this is not going to end well. And, you know, you often say things like that and you never think that it's going to relate to you or have anything to do with you. It's just wow, this is terrible. And I go to go pick her up. And as I'm going to pick her up, I see a car's overturned and the police have just gotten there. And I go, oh, I better move because they're going to shut PCH on this one. And for a flash, I said to myself, wow, Emily was supposed to be there. Nah, can't be. Well, it can be. It turned out that Emily was the victim of that crash. Uh, she died. He survived. We spent uh, two years in on in court trying to convict him we did convict him and um our legal system is really upside down here in california and now he's up for parole after being convicted for 15 years to life in prison so now we're dealing with that but wow. the thing that happened was normally you know, listen there's no one in the world and there's no greater tragedy there's no one in the world that I hate enough to wish this upon. And there's no greater tragedy than to lose your child, someone that you created, someone that right. you brought into this world that you're supposed to protect. Uh, I can talk openly now because that was 2010. You know, you learn to live with it and you learn to kind of deal with the emotions. But it was, uh, it, it's brutal. So we finally convicted him. We're now dealing with him trying to get out on parole. But while all this was going on, it became I became acutely aware of, of Pacific Coast Highway. Mm -hmm. Not only I was aware, I had two other girls that learned to drive, and we were always concerned when they were on PCH. I actually got my oldest daughter a old used car, a 1985 500 SEL uh, Mercedes. And it was a, you know, we fixed it up, but it was a, basically a junker because it had a steel cage. So if a bus hit that car, right, the bus would crash, she'd be fine. So I started noticing, and it was that summer, there were deaths and accidents almost every week. I mean, it was an incredible thing. And I said, this can't keep going. I mean, this is ridiculous. So I said... I got to make a move. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with filmmaker Michelle Shane, whose latest documentary, 21 Miles in Malibu, uh, is uh, doing really great in film festivals. Uh, Michelle is also the producer of such films as Catch Me If You Can and I, Robot. If what happened to Emily was in a film where you were actually driving down the canyon and you saw this car sort of storming out and and not knowing that this is going to impact you, we, we would have said, what a far-fetched film. Who wrote this? You know, and it's it's just tragic. I say that just... Really, first of all, I'm so sorry. I just just reading about you know just doing my homework and reading about it was was hard enough, but just uh, hearing you talk about it, I just can't fathom. And you're right. I mean, I I think after losing parents, the most the first before losing parents, losing a child is is the most uh, painful thing that someone can go through. And 
I just can't fathom it. Well, and, losing parents, that's a circle of life. I mean, right, exactly. You get old. Unfortunately, you you're the child and you watch your parents age and yeah. eventually as it's sad the way as it's it supposed is, to be to it's the way it's supposed to be, not the other That's way. That's right. And not it's not that way. it's not sad, but it's it's you know, if someone lives 90, 100 years, you go, they had a long, great life. It doesn't make it any sadder that that person is no longer in your life. But it's not the same as losing a 13-year-old who was just starting her life, just understanding the world. Yeah, who, who'd, who'd done nothing to... Right, right. Nothing. I mean, Emily was quite an incredible kid. So the documentary, because I didn't want the documentary to be the story of Emily, you mm. know, whoa, whoa, me, oh my God, I lost my child, I'm making a, a documentary about her life. No, what is, she is... But it makes of, it impactful, though. Right. right? I hope. Yeah. <laughs> I've lived with it for so long yeah. at this point. It took me 10 years to put it together. So I lived with it for so long that I no longer can look at it with a open open eye and mind, you know? Right. To me, it's just images at this point. But it's, listen, so we talk about, we talk about Emily, we talk about another girl who was a woman who was, um, training for Iron Man, and she was riding on PCH, and because the pavements are not flat, and there was a certain area where the curb, not the curb, well, the street is slightly higher than the, slightly higher, her wheel got caught in it, and she fell, and as she fell, a bus went by. Uh. So she was killed instantly, but that incident destroyed the bus driver's life, destroyed that family's life, her friends. You know, it's the ripple effect of it all. And yeah. we often don't think of that when stuff like that happens. You know, uh, Emily's 13 years old. She, all her friends were devastated. A young man who was with her, at the, a boy at the time, young man now was with her at the time. It affected his life forever. It's it's a brutal situation, and living here and having watched it, I finally said, okay, I can't take it anymore. I got to do something that's impactful that will force people to at least acknowledge it. And I want to get this film out and shown so that people can see it and go, okay, that's enough. We got to do something. And if enough people say that, change will happen. Michelle, let me ask, I, I want to ask you a question, but first, um, I have an observation. As I was sort of reading about this, I thought Malibu, right? One of the most affluent parts of the world, if you will. It's also an incorporated city. So it's not part of the city of Los Angeles. It has its own budget, its own government and such. Uh, and it has, you know, quite a lot of super influential people who live there. Not just, not just the actors and, and celebrities, but also billionaires and such. So how could Malibu, I, I don't use this word in a derogatory way, but the best, the only word that I can think of is how could this uh, segment of it or this element of it be, be so dysfunctional in a city like Malibu? Well, PCH is a federal highway. It's owned by, or a state highway, it's owned by the state. If Malibu controlled PCH in Malibu, the 21 miles that was Malibu, right. it would go bankrupt trying to keep it going. Right. So it, it's a unique situation in the sense that your main street of your little community right. is a highway. And right. to your point that, you know, oh, all the rich people live in Malibu, uh, there are regular people, uh, which I like to think of myself as one of them. No, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean it rich people in no, a derogatory it, way. Everybody, no, and, and I'm not saying it in a derogatory way. Look, people have their causes, and you can't expect because one person is successful in one business and high profile or not, to take a cause that's close to you to to their heart. Sure. So there are plenty of 
wealthy people here who are behind a lot of very big causes. And I think the greatest gift that anyone gives is doing stuff and not looking for recognition. It's of kind of like it's, um, you know, it's, I've done this. I haven't done this because I want to say, oh, my God, look at what a great guy I am. Look at what I've given back. It's I've done this because there's a need to, that it has to be done. Absolutely. And that's the way to do it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with filmmaker Michelle Shane, whose latest documentary, 21 Miles in Malibu, uh, is uh, doing really great in film festivals. Uh, Michelle is also the producer of such films as Catch Me If You Can and I, Robot. The, uh, the, where I'm coming from is you hear these types of things in uh, the communities that don't have the money, the cities that don't have the budget uh, and such. So my question was more about really funding and also awareness. And in, right. in a city like Malibu, you think, and I understand PCH is not a, it's not part of the city, um, but uh, surely I thought, well, maybe the city can influence, you know, the-, the Oh, the 100%. 100%. And There's, all of that. They've done, and they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. uh, doing reports and studies and looking and- and there's actually a segment in the film where we say a, a gentleman who was involved said, I found, I gave them, I showed them pictures of where accidents would be. And then I took pictures after the accidents to wow. show them that I was right. And they did a study and they found 55 things that could be done to make PCH safer. And of those 55 things, zero have been implemented because and, of politics. And that's on whom? That's on uh, the feds or state or city of Malibu? What's You what's know, I don't, honestly, I don't know. I, I, I'm not willing to point a finger, but I have to say that if the city was fighting for those, those things, the state might kind of look at it. I mean... Uh, and say, okay, we can't allocate all of them, but the easy ones we certainly could do, right? Sure. And, you know? and you just you just say now saying what I was saying, which is a powerful city. Uh, what what's holding them up from really you it's know pushing? Sometimes you've got to push the state. Sometimes you got to push the federal government. And if it doesn't come from local, they won't do it. It's not their priority. It's only no, a priority. No, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that this film causes the people that live here because yeah. it's it's a documentary. Yes. And we're trying to get wide exposure. But really, it's a Southern California and this area here, Thousand Oaks, uh, all the areas around here are the ones that are affected by this. And those should be the ones that see this movie so that they can get angry and create change. I mean, Absolutely. that's all I'm trying to do is. Look, it's not my soapbox. I felt I had to do something. I did it. And now I'll help promote it because it's a, to a benefit. And the re listen, there's no use making a movie that no one sees, right? It's like, well, you, you are. I mean, I know you're modest, but you, you are being of service. First of all, the film, I haven't seen the film, but I've seen the, uh, the trailer. And from talking to you, I can um, already tell that the film is, comes from a place of solution, right? How, do, right. how, can, we, how can we improve this? How, what can we work on? It comes from a place of solution. So it's a service to everyone, everyone that could be impacted. And, and hey, you could be from Sherman Oaks just going to Malibu, you know, to sunbathe, and this could happen to you or your kids. So it, it, it you know, it just, it impacts everyone. Let me give you a, a, sure. a, a little uh, tidbit, a little fact. On long weekends in Malibu, you could get 400, 500, 600,000 vehicles coming into a town that has a population of 13,000 people. You know, wow. think about that for a second. It's yeah. look, it's a resort town. Yes. It's like 
Cape Cod. It's like, so there's a, people want to go to the beach. Right. And we got a lot of beach. Right. So keep that in mind when you're driving in here and you're impatient and there's a ton of traffic. And Absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, I, I've been, I, I was caught one time. I went, I was going to an event in Malibu and it was too big. It was a, mine was a small event, but two massive events. One of them was like some motorcycle event was happening. The other one was like boating or something. And I remember just sitting on PCH, like it was a parking lot for like a couple of hours. So absolutely. You're, oh, um, the film is uh, in, in film festivals right now. That's correct. We've, we've made application. I mean, the film literally was finished in October. So we made okay. applications to a bunch of film festivals. We're waiting for some answers. Uh, we would, we are working on, and I'm, I'm going to be talking to the city about this, about doing a free showing of the film mm -hmm. to the community so that everyone here gets to see it. Because when I launched this project in uh, 2012, God, uh, when I was a young man, um, <laughs> They, uh, I did a Kickstarter, and a lot of people in this community donated to that Kickstarter, whether it be a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, whatever was was given to make this film happen. And I made this film part time because you know I have to work, I have a life, right? Um, but it was always my goal to get it made because it was too important. To first of all, to take other people's money and not deliver was not something that I wanted to live with and live in the community and just have whispers saying, "Oh yeah, Michelle made money off our backs and and didn't deliver." You know, it was very important to me. Absolutely, this is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you're listening to my interview with filmmaker Michelle Shane, whose latest documentary, 21 Miles in Malibu, uh, is uh, doing really great in film festivals. Uh, Michelle is also the producer of such films as Catch Me If You Can and iRobot. So it is not in, so you, you're going to do a screening or you're working on doing a screening at the city of Malibu, which is a great idea. Let the residents come see it. Yeah, let them come see it. It's a community thing. And then for any anyone who wants to see it, they're going to have to wait until it's at a film festival near them or a virtual film festival. Or or we'll put it out online or a distributor will pick it up and it'll go out on, you know, be a streaming or we actually don't know. You know, give me a couple more months and by then hopefully we'll know how we'll have this. Yeah. I just have to say this I was I I went to the website of the Emily Shane, your daughter's foundation. Yes. It was so pleasant to see the inspiration of it. The inspiration wasn't her tragic death, but the inspiration was who she was. Right. Someone who right. was a, who was a, a very inclusive of people and her spirit and uh, sense of community. Um, so I was, uh, I just loved reading about the foundation and what it's doing, like looking at the pictures and such. Um, so, um, if, um, if people want to give us the website for the Emily Shane foundation. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about it. So, okay. uh, when Emily died, the night she died, I was home obviously with my wife and kids and it just struck me. Emily was a kid who really embraced everyone. It didn't matter if you were, if you had a problem, if you were fat, if you were thin, if you had emotional issues, she embraced everyone and hated to see people being left out or homeless or any. I mean, my wife had to had to travel with an extra bag of food because she wanted to give people food whenever she saw that they were homeless. Wow. And if you were at school and sitting and having lunch alone, she would invite them over to her with her friends. So she was just that type of person. So I started what I called pass it forward. Do mm -hmm. a favor for someone else. No no recognition and let them do a favor for someone else and, and so on and so forth. And I started with that campaign. And my wife was wanted to do something. And 
she had spent a lot of time. Emily was very bright, but she had processing issues and she she had learning issues. And um, not enough to be in special a special class, but enough that she needed extra help and she was on what's called a 504 at school. My wife realized that there was nothing for those kids, really, for middle school children that couldn't make it, make it happen for themselves and didn't have the money to hire uh, tutors or, or, or instructors or whatever. And we luckily were able to do that. We found through that experience that she related best with university students. They were close in age and they kind of, it, it was easier bond. If it was an older person, it felt more like a parent. So right. it didn't work. So the Emily Shane Foundation started with three students in Malibu. Since we started 10 years ago, we've helped over a thousand students. And what we wow. do is we help kids that are struggling. We put them with a mentor tutor where they meet for two hours a week, two times, so one hour and one hour, uh, twice a week. And in that hour, the mentor deals with whatever they're struggling at school with, help them get organized, just basically is a coach and someone to help them push forward. Right. And it's the most incredible thing. And, I, and I'll share one quick story with you because Please. I'm most proud of it. A girl came to us, joined the program, stayed with us through middle school, then went off to high school. And, you know, we never hear from them again. Uh, occasionally we'll bump into them and whatnot. And she got into university and in her first year of university, she reached out to the program to become a mentor to give wow. That's awesome. That's what it's all about. So yeah. the website is emilyshane.org. So it's E-M-I-L-Y-S-H-A-N-E.org. .org. And uh, we're all, look, we're a small little foundation trying to grow. The beauty about the, our foundation, it is very replicable. Anybody, any community could run with this this uh, style of a foundation to help their kids. Yeah, and what a what a great thing you're doing of bringing attention to this. Uh, people like Emily who are not special ed, but yet there's a little bit of need that they have. They're sort of probably in what I would say like a crack, right? So yes, it's exactly. not so obvious to the educational system. Um, and uh, bringing attention to that and uh, getting support for students like that. So that's emilyshane.org. And uh, Michelle, so the film at this point, uh, people can go to the website for the film and watch the trailer and right. look at um, uh, uh, photos, still photos and such like that. What is the website for the so film? So it's 21milesinmalibu.com. So it's just like the sign that, that's uh, at the beginning of uh, Malibu. It says 21 miles Ma Ma Malibu. So right. 21 miles in Malibu.com. Fantastic. Um, break a leg with the film festivals. I'm sure it's going to be well. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add that I maybe perhaps forgot to ask you? No, I mean, with the foundation, a lot of the kids, what we don't realize when we look at all the kids in school is what's going on in their personal lives. Mm -hmm. So a lot of kids, especially in the in communities that are struggling, you know, parents are holding down a couple jobs or a parent is in prison or they're divorced or there's a single parent. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And what the foundation does is help them focus on how they can succeed. Because at the end of the day, if those kids succeed, we've passed forward the greatest gift and the thing that the kids do for they get the tutoring for free, but they have to do a good deed for every mentoring session they have. So we we are creating members of our community that will hopefully grow up and realize that they've got to give back to get and pass it on. And what a great way to keep the legacy of Emily alive. Yeah, well, that was the whole thing. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. I said. I never wanted her to be that poor little girl that died on PCH. What was her name again? That that we've made sure has not happened. Definitely. Well, Michelle, thank you very much. Thank you for telling us about Emily, uh, the foundation, and uh, 21 Miles in Malibu. And uh, I'll keep my eye out for when the film comes out. Great. I'd love to share it with you. And uh, hopefully 
coming to someplace near you soon. <laughs> yeah, or streaming. Or streaming, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. Chat with you again soon. Thank you. That was my interview with uh, Michelle Shane, uh, filmmaker and activist. Michelle, thank you very much for sharing your experience, your personal tragedy, and your film with me and everyone who's listening. Uh, I really appreciate your time and good luck with the film. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego County, and globally at kpfk.org. The Blunt Post with Vic. Jake Bernazian is a prominent attorney based in Washington, D.C., and an activist with the Knights of Vartan, an Armenian-American fraternal service and philanthropy organization. Jake has been a longtime supporter of the Independent Republic of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, the Republic of Armenia, and has several ongoing humanitarian projects there. Good morning, Jake. Uh, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing well. Doing well this morning. Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, being on the show. Uh, you and I have known each other for a while now. Uh, you are definitely uh, an exceptional expert in um, many areas, but we're here to uh, talk about primarily about um, what I call the the 2020 Azerbaijan's and Turkey's genocide genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing of the autonomous. Uh, independent Republic of Artsakh, also known by its former Soviet name, Nagorno-Karabakh, the massacre of 5,000 plus Armenians, as well as the ongoing uh, campaigns of hate, violence, and disinformation that nations of Azerbaijan and Turkey have unleashed on the Armenians, as well as uh, Republic of Armenia, um, which has created a very dangerous situation for them, for the Armenians. Uh, as you and I are talking right now. So uh, um, I let's start, just go right into it. Tell me about your, your assessment or your perspective of what happened in 2020 and why it happened. Well, the war broke out initiated by uh, Azerbaijan's uh, attacks. And it continued throughout uh, this five-week stretch. And the from the Armenian side, uh, you know, from what I observed and in, in talking with villagers, there seemed to be a little bit uh, a, a coordination problem with the, the defense forces. The reserves were under a separate command from the um, the regulars regular army forces. And then also you had the uh, Artsakh armed forces under the command of the uh, Armenian generals. And and there's also what you have with a defense minister of Artsakh being the same as the commander in chief. So he's wearing two hats. And that there's a conflict of interest there when your president uh, orders you to attack, but your commanding general in Armenia orders you to uh, hold or, or, or retreat. So we saw that that causing some problems during the uh, the war itself, and then at the end, I think the uh, from everyone I was uh, in touch with, they were very much committed to uh, defending that territory, and uh, continuing uh, to uh, uh, re try to regain that recapture of the land. The Azerbaijan had only captured twenty five percent of uh, the Republic of Artsakh at the time. Uh, that they decided that the ceasefire, November 10th. And in that, it, it was just a heartbreak for the villagers because they uh, ended up giving up 80% of their land and 99% of their water resources. And the, the, I think the, the people were really just left uh, befuddled and, and, uh, and, and shocked uh, at the suddenness, and especially after a 30-year effort of uh, not only standing up for their, but in fighting for their independence. So that was a really difficult outcome for them to accept in, in, in the course of that five-week war. 
Yeah, and you, as you mentioned, uh, there, I would say, what, 80% of Artsakh is now occupied by Azerbaijan, and most importantly, the water resources. And Artsakh is surrounded by Azerbaijani troops, and it only has one route out to Armenia proper, um, which is it's very volatile, and it's uh, sort of monitored by both Azerbaijani and Russian troops. And, you know, this this so-called ceasefire that happened in November 9th, when Russia uh, brokered it, it was it was there was an attempt by the U.S. and France to broker it first, and then uh, they didn't succeed. Uh, or I should say it wasn't like that they didn't succeed. It's just Azerbaijan wouldn't stop. I mean, they would break the ceasefire and just keep killing. And so when Putin stepped in, uh, we know about the collusion of Putin and, and Aliyev, Azerbaijan's president. Um, the ceasefire was signed, which was just very damaging to Armenia and Artsakh and, and all those interests. But it was, aside from being beneficial for Azerbaijan, it was beneficial for Russia, for Putin, because Putin got to finally have his footsteps in the South Caucasus to monitor the flow of oil and gas and water resources, you know, be stationed right by the Iranian border uh, and just sort of be in an area that uh, it never had been before. And that's where we're at now, that there are Russian troops um, stationed there. What's your take on that? Well, it's that situation is kind of um, transformed, I'd say, in the last 20 months. Because what started off as a uh, ceasefire in the Latching Corridor would have been the connecting pipeline for Artsakh to um, have any access to Armenia or uh, anything outside of Azerbaijan. That got removed in this past five months. Right. And so now with the new road, they call it the new road, that road uh, is, is going it, it's straight through Azerbaijan territory. Whereas the Latching Corridor was pretty much treated as still uh, a sovereign Armenian territory. It was Armenian land. There was that, that Ar Armenian villages there. And so to attack the Latching Corridor would have been um, compromising the, the, the Armenian uh, inhabitants and, and the sovereignty of that two and a half kilometers on the left and right of the road. So now you got a new road um, that's controlled it's in Azerbaijani territory so if violence and war breaks out uh nobody's getting out of Artsakh uh without <laughs> without the approval or, or or of Azerbaijan the Russian troops are are there but you only have 2500 Russian troops so they're a peacekeeping force but it's not any kind of offensive or military deterrence because if Azerbaijan was to do a blitzkrieg attack with, you know, say 25, 30,000 troops coming across the border with a full drone, a blitzkrieg, they they have a, a, a good advantage over the Russians. So I think there's a more of a defensive force. I mean, you know, we've seen all the attacks that have happened and Russians haven't really done anything. But Azerbaijan just keeps attacking and killing people around the borders. And we haven't seen. Yes. And. And I think in Bedzor was a good example on August 4th because there was a Russian base and there was kind of an unwritten uh, set of actions that Azerbaijan was attacking Armenian and shooting on Armenian uh, inhabitants and soldiers, but they were staying away from the Russians. But on August 4th and 3rd, they came out with a full blitzkrieg on Bedzor using heavy artillery and kamikaze drones. And that was a test on the resolve of the Russians on whether they're in there for the fight or they're just going to see how it goes. And after a few days, uh, Russia capitulated and, and, and gave Bedzor and, and vacated that military base. So that was a that was a tough setback for um, the security analysts saying, oh, Russia's there to protect them. Because right after that, that gave the green light for uh, Azerbaijan to do its uh, September 13th attack on Armenia basically getting a, a a nod that there wouldn't be any negative repercussions coming from it. So 
the presence of Russia is is an important factor that's keeping the peace and actually keeping the people in Artsakh alive. And I think there's what the, the, the uncertainty is, is the commitment of the Russians on standing behind their pledge to protect the Armenians. Right. Especially now that uh, Russia itself is um, preoccupied with the Ukrainian war. With with Ukraine, uh, Putin's attack on Ukraine. Uh, If you're just joining in, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with attorney, activist, and humanitarian, Jake Bournazian. And we are discussing uh, geopolitics, um, world politics, the conflicts that are happening, specifically Azerbaijan and Turkey's uh, attacks on the Republic of Artsakh, as well as Armenia and the situation there. So in September, as you said, Armenia itself as a sovereign nation was attacked by Azerbaijan, which prompted uh, Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi to take a trip to Armenia and to declare her support and say that... uh, this was an illegal attack, and the United States will stand behind Armenia on this, which, uh, of course, it pissed off Azerbaijan and Aliyev and such. You know, we've talked about this, and, and you know that, you know, my film talks about this uh, sort of thoroughly. But um, talk about why uh, Aliyev, who is known to be, to the world, to be an authoritarian dictator, is able to get away with so much um, in the in the sort of the context of the international community, uh, all the major powers, agencies, and such. Yeah, and so are you commenting on? Yeah, I just want to hear your hypocrisy of the outcome, or, or... As, as to how could someone get away with so much? I mean, I feel like um, you know the short answer is oil and gas, and if he didn't have oil and gas, he'd be treated like Saddam Hussein. But I, I mm-hmm. think you probably have a much more eloquent answer to that. Yeah, no, there's um, what they, I, I hate the phrase, but the, you see it uh, used by the political pundits that the geopolitics of the region are uh, dictating uh, U.S. foreign policy position and State Department response. And it's, it's true that the geopolitics of the situation are dictating it. And, and you pointed out, it happens to be oil and gas, um, but that's um, what, what's leading up here is the same exact mistake that we saw happen uh, 100 years ago in the 20th century, in which you know the world powers knew that the uh, Armenian genocide of 1915 was a terrible crime, but because of um, the way they wanted to divvy up oil interests in 1919 and the American Petroleum Institute's lobbying efforts, they decided to look the other way and not take action. Uh, It's not like they condoned a a mass murder. They just decided not to take action because they just wanted to strike uh, oil concessions. And and we saw this again in in the mid-30s when the United States, and when Hitler came to the United States and said, give me arms, I'll go fight the Bolsheviks. And Ford Motor Company went over there and was building the trucks. And uh, General Motors went over, formed Opel uh, Motors, and was building them tanks. And then Hitler turns around and he says to Russia and says, give me weapons. I'll go attack Europe and destabilize them for um, a fascist communist alliance. And they did. And you see that playing out today where, you know, the United States looks the other way on what Turkey's behavior is. They looked the other way during the Iraq war and they're looking the other way now because they want them to work, use their destabilizing factor. And, and Turkey's very, very skillful in how they, uh, uh, you know, manipulate their foreign policy because they're doing the same thing Hitler did uh, with the, the backdrop of mass murdering an ethnic group. Turkey goes to the United States and says, give me your best weapons. I'll go fight Russia and give them a hard time. And then he turns right around and Erdogan tells Russia, Putin, give me some weapons. Give me your best weapons and I'll go attack Greece and destabilize NATO for you. And and it's almost like 1938, 39, where 
the United States was watching Hitler committing these atrocities. And it was like, oh, geez, I really wish you wouldn't go into Poland, Czechoslovakia. And, and Stalin was reaching out to Roosevelt for an alliance. And they're like, nah, we'd rather still support Hitler than do an alliance with the Bolsheviks. And you see that right now in 2022. The United States sees what Azerbaijan did. They know it was criminal. They know it was a, a mass murder and uh, with genocidal intent. And they're on the edge. They're on the edge, just like the United States in 1939. They're, they're still sticking with Azerbaijan, but they don't like what they see. But it's not enough. It doesn't hurt bad enough for them to do anything about it. And that's the sad uh, analysis that these so-called smarty pants in the State Department think they got it all figured out for regime change or controlling geopolitics. And what they end up doing with their incompetence is uh, leading uh, not only a, a mass murder here in Artsakh, but a, a spiraling um, domino effect of genocides across the con uh, all continents in this world. Just like 13 genocides flowed across uh, uh, the world after the Armenian genocide in the 20th century, and the world had to stand up in 48 right. and say, we need a United Nations because your world powers are incompetent of stopping this crime. We're going to see the same thing. If they're not able to um, preserve peace and stop genocide in Artsakh, you're going to see the same model unfold in Myanmar, in Nigeria, in Congo, and even in El Salvador, Ethiopia. across uh, in every continent. Yeah, these man. hotbeds are sitting there. Yemen, and even even yeah. in Europe, with Bosnia, and you know nothing settled. In well, how many so, how many more groups of people does Erdogan have to slaughter before they do anything? I mean, Turkish President uh, Erdogan has been killing um, Assyrians, Kurdish, Yazdis, yeah. Assyrians, Armenians, and it goes on and on. Uh, he's Racial already, purification. Yeah. Yep. And he's even tried uh, penetrating in uh, Libya and Yemen. Uh, and uh, he just uh, seems to be like this runaway train bully, like his uh, little brother, and I quote, Aliyev <laughs> of Azerbaijan. Let me, um, you know, you made some uh, some good points, and which which partly answers my next question, but I think you can elaborate on this, which is why should the why should the average American care? Um, about what's happening halfway around the world to Artsakh, to Armenia, um, and the, the chaos, I think it's, you can call it a chaos, that uh, is prevailed in, in that region. Because once again, the American public uh, is uh, faced with uh, uh, the reality that civilization really has not advanced. Technology has advanced. And technology has no morals or bounds. And so Americans need to pay attention to this because whichever way it goes down, uh, if, if peace is preserved, and you're going to see uh, a, a couple decades, uh, at least a generation growing up with peace across the planet. If, if, if genocide breaks out and is completed, uh, now you're going to see millions of people perish it may not be inside the United States. It's going to be all around the United States. But it's going to send it, it's innocent. Millions of innocent people are going to die. And it's mainly because the United States never really came to any grips of uh, facing its own history on the genocide it committed against the Native Americans. So the only reason why genocide isn't going to break out is we've already polished off the Native Americans. No need. But it's going to have a major impact. Uh, because America has, it's the only country in the world that has every country represented inside it. You got all 190 country citizens right here in America, and they're living peacefully in a tolerant society under a rule of law. So it's the United States that if it can um, you pay attention to this, be the leading example for the rest of the world on tolerance. And that's the message of the 21st century, that the, the, the technology has shown us how we can mass murder human beings more efficiently than we have ever 
done in the history of mankind. You know, we 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 started the 20th century, you know, com, you know, feeling sorry for the Armenian genocide, but we finished the 20 20th century murdering a million Rwandans, actually Tutsis, within 40 days. Right. We did it so efficiently, faster than ever before, and we see now that in the 21st century, we're not only able to do it faster and better, we can do it entirely by machine. We don't even need human beings chasing them down on the field with a rifle. Right. The drones. We can do it all. The drones, the, art, the precision artillery with the cluster bombs, with the phosphorus bombs, you never even have to send your troops in and you can annihilate yeah. tens of thousands of people in the cities. Which is what and Azerbaijan it, did in Artsakh. It's exactly. And that's the model. To right. use these new 21st century weapons and machinery to do the dirty work, and you now that's so it makes it even scarier that it's easier to commit genocide today, even uh, than it was 100 years ago, and, and we, we've been living with the uh, genocide treaty from, since 1948. Wow, well said. That was that was awesome. Anything you want to add, Jake, before we go? No, that's uh, that's it. Thanks. Well. Thank you for being on the show, for your wisdom, your experience, your uh, your truth, and your message of hope. And uh, we will chat again soon. Thank you. Thank you. So that was my uh, interview with Jake Bernazian. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, thank you, Jake, for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. Uh, your insight, your experience, your, your strength, your hope. Uh, hope to have you on the show again. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie.